within minutes, the Tracy brothers up in space are like doing their little weird puppet thing. And they're like, yeah, there he is. And we know who it is because this database says that it's, it's Mick and he does that podcast. So he's going to be fine because he heard that idiot from Britain rambling on about this. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Welcome back, and today's episode is a lot of fun while still covering some really useful and important education for anyone that operates around helicopters for a living or just purely for recreation. To set the scene, let me ask you how much thought you've put into what you wore and what you carried with you last time you went for a flight. How well prepared would you be if you got forced down unexpectedly en route and had to wait for you know, some time and possibly days for a recovery or a rescue. Hopefully after today's episode, you'll be armed with some new knowledge and some approaches to get you out of a tight spot. And you might review what you take flying with you next time you go up. It might just save your life. It's a, a real pleasure to be able to bring you this interview with John Hudson. And reading straight from John's bio, John is the UK military's chief instructor in land, sea, and extreme environmental survival. He was formerly a RAF helicopter pilot, and he's been a full-time instructor in, in SEER, which is Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Extraction, for the past 10 years or so. He survived elements in the uh, cold seas off the British coast, in the snows of the Arctic Circle, in Asia and, and Central American jungles. He's been in the, the high altitudes of the Akataka uh, Desert, which is uh, partly in, in Chile in Southern America. And that desert is actually, you know, considered the uh, the closest place on Earth to the uh, equivalent of the environment in Mars. Uh, so that's a, a bit of credibility there. And look, as a bit of fun too, John's got a couple of gigs on the side. He's also been one of the regular cast members in a TV series called Dude, You're Screwed, uh, which has been a series on the Discovery Channel, where John and a couple of other hardcore survival experts take turns in uh, basically abducting and kidnapping each other and then dropping each other off in you know random uh, remote places around the world uh, so the middle of the jungles and in uh, in snow covered mountains and in the arctic and places like that and pretty much they're just in whatever they they're wearing when they get nabbed and then they have to hike out and uh, get themselves rescued so we talk a little bit about that in this interview but it also makes for you know pretty and in, in, uh, you know inter- interesting uh, watching and uh, you know, really putting their survival skills uh, to the test. So before we jump into John's interview, I want to talk about a, a BBC article that John tweeted to me a couple of days after we uh, spoke and recorded this. So Sergei Ananov is a, a Russian pilot. On the 25th of July uh, 2015, so not that long ago, he was on day 42 of his solo around-the-world flight in a R-22. He was halfway between Canada and Greenland out over the sea, about 1,500 feet, he had a power loss and ditched into the Arctic Ocean. And a fair effort, uh, Sergei was able to actually retrieve, retrieve a life raft from the R-22 before it sank. And he swims to a, an iceberg, and then he survived uh, two days on an iceberg while fending off uh, polar bears before being rescued. And I'll include a, a link to the, the full BBC article in the show notes for this episode. But Sergei's experience is just, you know, it's a great contemporary example of some of the things that John was about to cover uh, in this interview and how you can maximize your chances of survival and rescue. So you don't have to be necessarily doing it on around the world a trip. Uh, this could be something that just happens on a, uh, you know, a chart over a, a, you know, a more remote area. So well worth a read that article after you listen to this episode. So let's get stuck into it. Here's John. John Hudson, hey, thank you very much for being able to join us on the Rotary Wing Show. So welcome. Mick, my pleasure. Thanks very much for the invite. Great to chat to you guys. Yeah, look, I'm, you know, again, we've had some great guests, but I, I am looking forward to, to chatting with you because, uh, yeah, you've, you've got a, a, a colourful background and uh, you get up to some interesting <laughs> things. So, <laughs> but, Yeah, fair one. 
So I, I guess before this, I've given an intro, and so people mm-hmm. have an expectation of what's coming up, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, we're obviously moving towards talking about um, survival scenarios. Yeah, and what to do in a uh, downed aircraft or a, you know a crash sort of scenario where we've got to yes hang around. But before we get into that, let's um you know let's set yourself up as uh, as far as experience goes, and okay. uh, you know again the perfect mix of ex helicopter pilot or current maybe or we'll find out what you're currently doing, and then obviously the survival right. side. So yeah, yeah. R- Royal Air Force, and tell us how did you how did you get started with helicopters? Yes, mate. Well. Um I've always wanted to be a pilot when I was younger. So um, I joined the Air Force straight away after college. I was lucky enough to be sponsored through college as well. So the Queen, in her kindness, paid for me to go to art school and and draw naked ladies for three years. And when I finished doing that, I went into the Air Force as uh, just, you know, pilot training done a little bit on the university air squadrons which are a great institution if any of your listeners have ever had the pleasure to play out with those guys uh, went through rotary training got breveted up and ended up on the puma ocu so i was on the, the sort of the green plastic helicopter built in france it's recently had a huge overhaul so it's a much more capable airframe now but it was great fun to fly I didn't do very long on there, mate. I ended up um, getting a, a medical thing come up, which meant they weren't, they, you know, I wasn't going to be allowed to fly anymore. Um, appealed against that, took a long time. What I was doing in the meantime, if I wasn't flying, was I was always interested in the outdoorsy stuff. And um, the survival bit had been a, something I'd been interested in right back from when I was in college. I was lucky enough to get on an Air Force winter survival course then. So uh, I'd, I'd always blended helicopters and survival. And luckily for me, I, uh, having instructed at the Royal Air Force Survival School for a few times, I managed to get a full-time job down here after I stopped being a, a professional pilot. So it all worked out for the best in the end. And I've been able to hopefully apply what I learned flying to uh, – make it more realistic training and credible training for guys who are coming through the school, which is now, uh, it's a tri-service defence school that I work at. Okay, because, yeah, I was going to ask, you know, because that was the big thing. Most, And I guess the, the survival training is probably a defence thing, mainly just because of resourcing. You know, we defence folks normally get through some kind of survival training or, you know, mm. down their crew training. But, uh, yeah, most folks, once they've done it, <laughs> they're more than happy to go back to flying. They've <laughs> kind of uh, yeah. hung around in that side of things. So, yeah, I was interested in about that. Uh, before we, I guess, leave the, the Royal Air Force uh, or the flying yes. side, did yeah. you deploy anywhere with the Pumas or you were – No, mate. No, okay. I was um, I was medically uh, taken off flying just at the very end of the operational conversion phase. So I was oh, almost no. going out the door. But, um, no, I literally came back. I, I was flying a trip with some um, – a training trip with some soldiers up in the north of the country and landed back on at the uh, the has site and uh, mobile phone went and it's like yeah go and speak to the doc mate there's been a change of tack on what the med board is saying and it oh, went from no. all all roses to not roses that way so yeah unfortunately not well, that's right well it looks like it's it's worked out for you since anyway so you've been up to it has yeah so yeah yeah you, so you obviously you know you did the training courses but at the moment just trying to work backwards from your bio mm. are you actually mm. in charge of the uk survival training at the moment uh, no, I'm in, I'm sort of the chief instructor is the name of the post, but I'm sort of in charge of the training of all the instructors. So we we have a small team within uh, the school of the, the the most experienced guys, and I'm like the the, the guy who looks after those blokes. And we um, we've got sort of senior mentors and then team um, instructors and overseeing that is myself so i'll i'll design and develop the training for new instructors and then we implement that and you know to get to that position obviously i've i've taught regular or normal type students for a long time as well so i've run lots of different training in all the different teams and it just so happens that pretty much mate all the competent instructors have eventually left and they've you know they're stuck with me now so i do all that sort of stuff on top you're very self-depreciated. I listened to another interview where you, you spoke about your flying and uh, you, you sort of you, you did the same with your flying skills, which I'm sorry, I'm sure that's uh, not quite the case as we get through. All right, so you're training the other survival instructors. Now, uh, and, yeah. and again, on, on the military side, so that's not just you know survival, how to mm-hmm. find water, that's um, escape and evasion no. and all the other bits and pieces. Yes, mate. So the difference between what some of the TV shows will show about survival and what we do here is um, this is SEER, which in the UK stands for Survival, Evasion, Resistance and Extraction. And I'm kind of the the mentor specialist guy for survival, evasion and extraction. So we look at all sorts of scenarios, be it peacetime or wartime, on water as well, you know. So if guys uh, ditch into, into the blue wobbly stuff, we do that. If they come down on land, be it the Arctic, the desert the, the the tropics we teach military personnel not just aviators i must say at this point but like all kinds of personnel in what to do how to stay alive how to not 
caught by the wrong people as well and how to get rescued because that's the important part mate a lot of times there's a misconception that survival is all about becoming some kind of at one with nature you know lives in the environment and catches lots of bunnies and goes on prospers but what you're actually aiming to do is get back to your unit as fast as you can that's the the, the goal really love it all right can you tell us a couple of worries from that then like what's the worst thing you've yeah. had to eat and uh <laughs> and the thing of the question i preload you with there is you know the the, cool. the the pooping in the plastic bag and having to, to carry it with you and stuff like that you know when you talk about sas type sure. stuff so yeah i know right. what's, your, what's your experience right so some of the stuff that we do we will go to all kinds of different places and what we try to teach is and this is this will hopefully resonate a little bit with your your listeners because what we're trying to do being let's take a rotary example so let you're being a helicopter pilot you're doing that job somewhere in the world the last thing you want to have to do is to remember lots and lots of extra details on top of all the stuff you have to do to operate that aircraft professionally anyway so what we teach people are some sort of general principles that they can apply pretty much anywhere some of its drills so like you said earlier mick that you've done the, the hewitt so the stuff that guys learn in underwater escape training we don't teach that stuff here but if you apply the same model so it has to be muscle memory it has to be stuff that will come back in the worst of scenarios so that you don't have to dig too deep in your memory and lose vital seconds so we teach those sorts of principles and we apply that anywhere in the world and that's true of um, survival in peacetime and in wartime so we don't necessarily give people huge long extra checklists to learn but we give them a bit of experiential stuff so that they can go out into any environment and importantly survive so you know maintain the right body temperature and stuff and so even more importantly almost is once they've survived, they've got to survive and get back to their to their muckers. You know, you've got to get rescued and get home because there's no point wandering around being alive, but being a, a burden on the rescue forces trying to find you. You've got to promote your own recovery. Uh, so we teach all that. And as part of that, we go to some really interesting places. Um, stuff that we'll do, we'll go up to the Arctic and uh, we'll, we'll live in really, really cold, deep snow. Uh, but we try to learn from the locals because the best way is to learn from the guys who live there all year round. And, you know, there are there are teenage kids out in these environments having babies and tents and things. So it's not that it's impossible to survive there. But if you're not from that environment, you need to learn the tricks. So when we, we go up to the northern hemisphere, we'll, we'll work with the Sami peoples who are the, the reindeer herders of, of um, Scandinavia. And one of the things they do is they'll they'll show our guys how to to live off the land and one of the key things they have is is reindeer so they'll do like slaughtering of live animals in front of the guys and then they'll get to try the the delicacies within so you know a little bit of raw reindeer heart near christmas never goes amiss <laughs> and then we'll, we'll we'll move down and we'll do similar sort of stuff in the tropics so we wander around borneo with the local guys the iban and they show some cool skills down there but it's all got it's all focused you know you've got to understand how they manage before you can try it yourself so a lot of times um, and the tension in the press is sometimes spent wrongly in survival with what are the weirdest kind of foods you can eat but you also have to know that in all these environments you cannot survive without water and if you're eating stuff that's going to dehydrate you then you're making your situation worse so we'll show them first and foremost find water and then if you found water sustain yourself with easy calories and an easy calorie in the jungle is an insect so we do all that we, we show the guys which insects to go for how to prepare them how to make sure that if they are feeling a little bit squeamish well probably they're not hungry enough but b if you wanted to you can make it you can disguise it in some other kind of food stuff that you might have on you so you know we, we don't go for the um i'm a celebrity blood and guts type approach we, we go for the pragmatic eat it before it goes off you want that first or this is easy to get in terms of calories and won't importantly put you at risk of injury by trying to climb up some obscene cliff or tree to get to it so it's all it's a bit in reality mick survival training can tend to be a little bit mundane because you're mitigating risk all the time in order to get rescued the most important thing it's just to have a really good rescue beacon with you because then you can sit pretty near airframe, wait for rescue to come along and just signal to them when they get on top. Great stuff. And uh, as you're talking about the reindeers, um, I remember that yeah. they, they killed a goat on, on our survival course. And, oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm complete city kid, you know. I've probably spent a, yeah. a night on a farm and I can still, <laughs> I can still picture this goat. Just <laughs> The guys must have been hacking at it to kill it, the poor thing. But I can, I can still oh, picture the noise. But, um, <laughs> all right, all. And that's, a, yeah, that's not – unfortunately, there's a lot of like – how to put it? I mean, especially in the UK, there's been a huge boom in – 
um, sort of outdoorsy skills training and stuff. And if, if your listeners are thinking about getting some survival training, and I definitely recommend it because a tiny bit of knowledge will carry them through the worst of situations. But, um, you know, make sure you pick the right providers because you don't want to go and see some poor chicken having its head half pulled off and not really learn much. Because what do you go away with? Like you said, you know, what do I remember about survival training? Well, it's a bit uncomfortable. You know, go to someone who's, who's good at the game. Good stuff. Now, you're talking about mundane. Now, you're involved in a TV series in the States, and I guess it's been exported back to the UK, and it's uh, called Dude, You're Screwed. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, look, I've, I've watched two of the episodes, and it looks like a lot of fun. It's, it's, uh, it was. It's a little bit – I won't say – I don't know if we've got a lot of Americans listening, and, and this is coming from an Australian <laughs> context, and I guess you could right. appreciate being British. Like, the the editing in some aspects is a bit over the top. Like, it's very, you know, edutainment. But, the, no, like it's a yeah. lot of fun, and, um, you know, some of the aspects, like, there's one part, you know, where you, you're really super high, dehydrated, but you find the water, mm. but then mm. you've actually got to sit there and time yourself drinking it so you don't drink it all. Oh, at once I remember that. that. Yeah. yeah. So now there's yeah. some really interesting things there, but um, the, yeah, the two episodes I saw, there was, there was a heap of helicopter work in that too. So yes, know, there was different sort of Hueys in in Central America and stuff. So yeah, yeah, I oh, know man, like, yeah. you in, you involved in the in the organisation, you know, that sort of yeah. logistics or. We, we were a little bit, yeah. I mean, there's sort of the big muscle moves that the production company had to make to get all their assets into into the area. You know, that we, we leave that to them. But when it comes down to the individual game, as we, we were calling it, and who we were going to put out, then we had, you know, a pretty good say in how we wanted that to roll. And the general way of doing things, if you want to drop somebody off and you don't want them just to follow your footprints back to wherever you've gone, there's only really two options when you think about it. You can either chuck them out of some kind of aircraft or drop them into something, you know, by that they can't climb out of. And um, I was lucky, mate. I, I had three drop-offs. Uh, one was by helicopter, so helicopter flies away. Can't, you know, can't learn a huge amount from which way to go from from that other than watch where the helicopter disappears, which I tried to do sneakily. So I thought, well, uh, you know, when we do survival courses in the UK, um, if I'm getting the helicopter to drop some of the students off, we do dummy drops to confuse the hunter force for one thing and to kind of give the lads uh, on who are on, girls who are in the back a little bit of a heightened sense of anxiety to sort of simulate a crash, that kind of thing. So they'll fly a couple of places. They'll think they're getting off. They're not getting off yet. Here we are. Off you get, you know, that sort of sketch. But I didn't think that the guys involved with the game that I was playing, because it was the first one we did, would be thinking so sneakily. So I just kept a weather eye on where the helicopter went. And it was a little Eurocopter squirrel. So I'd flown those in training and I kept an eye on the HSI and the, the airspeed indicator and all that kind of good stuff and tried to keep some mental breadcrumbs going of which direction I've been flying for how long to give myself a clue and then watch the helicopter disappear in the Bondu into a certain mountain pass. And it's like, right, oh, I can, I can probably aim for that mountain pass. And I had a, this cunning plan in my head. But then the fog came down and the snow came down and it's back to basics. You know, you're back to magnetized needle, E&E type sort of uh, navigating. And then the other ones were, we were dropping guys into places without a helicopter. And I was, my other two drops were those ones. So I got uh, lowered into a canyon and then cut away into a flooded cave, which was particularly unpleasant. I think that might have been the one you saw, mate. But yeah, it's tricky to get the logistics right so that people can't just follow you out. And how does it work? Because you've obviously got a cameraman with you, so you're there, hungry, mm. hungry, cold, starving. You know, walking through the jungle, and you've got the yeah. the, the guy walking next to you. <laughs> What's is he chewing on muesli bars and stuff like that? What are you going through, or how does it work? <laughs> so, firstly, the camera bloke who goes with you is an absolute ninja. Because no matter how beat up we looked, and um, and we were, I mean, I I lost toenails. I could do to do it again because you know you, you lose about a stone in weight every time you go out but the camera guy he's going through exactly the same crap that you're going through but he's carrying all his equipment as well and he's got like a heavy camera kit not only is he carrying it he has to to be professional and frame all these shots so my my hat goes off to those blokes I, I was lucky enough to work with two different guys closely on the times i was dropped off and and both of those guys were, were really 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 good what i would say though is the very first time we went out the very first time I went out, it was the it was the first time that um, Ninja One had had like been out on this sort of survival course. And the, the rules as we play it, so when I'm out running training survival courses for anybody, be they civilians or, or for military people, if they're if they're in a hard place, you know, and if you're not used to camping, like you said, you're a city kid. If you know a hard place for someone who's not used to the outdoors, maybe being outdoors it's not necessarily dropping them off with no food and equipment you know there's there's a sliding scale of discomfort isn't there so if a guy's out and 
he's struggling, then the last thing we would do as instructors is, is eat in front of him or even have like, you know, the traces of a bacon sandwich on your breath or around your mouth because they're <laughs> going to hate you for it. So, but then if you're a cameraman, like the guys I was working with, they've never done this sort of thing. Then first day, yeah, okay. He's opening his flask and he's having a lovely drink of coffee in Alaska. And I, all I can smell is coffee. And I'm like, oh mate, I'm going to have to step away while you have your lunch. Cause this is like, he's getting beyond beyond temptation he's like do you want a drink i'm like mate i can't have a drink it's, it wouldn't be on so it, that was the very first go the very first time we did it after that they had a little staff sort of debrief at the end of the uh, odyssey and they're like right okay rule number one do not eat in front of the lads when they're isolated it's not good for their morale but yeah it's not the sort of thing that's necessarily obvious to people who haven't done that sort of um I don't know, mock starvation training before, but it was definitely hard to stand downwind of him when he was having his uh, his cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah, I was always yeah as I was watching the shows, I was just wondering behind the scenes type thing because you know he's obviously <laughs> carrying he's carrying a fair bit yeah. of gear with him and all that sort of gear and yeah, uh, yeah so and uh, perfect. All right, well look, uh, outside the um, so also outside the TV work you're doing and the uh, yes. and the military, are you running? Uh, and I think you are. Are you running international training courses and, and traveling around the world uh, doing that for other people yeah um i'm a full-time reservist now mate so what i do during the week is uh, in uk military uniform um during my time off um some colleagues and i we do a bit of training for other people as well so it's not huge numbers of the general public but we'll train people who are possibly going to get into positions of risk so one of the guys or the groups that your um, your audience might be interested in are the, the people who do the, the helicopter transfer of acute patients. And, and they could go all over the world on these trips. And it may be that they're in a road ambulance one week and they're in the back of a helicopter the next. But they're very, very highly trained in what they do medically. But they've not necessarily had too much training in what would happen if the helicopter came down. So we give them a bit of training on that. And that's proving to be pretty popular, actually. And we're probably going to be doing a lot more of it in the future. But sort of the, the transfer of acute patients is by necessity, you know, it's fairly rapid. They're always going to try to get the, the patient through. And it may be that for reasons completely out of their control, they find themselves having to just, even if it's just to sort of land on in a fairly remote place and shut down for a couple of hours. I mean, that that can be quite uh, taxing for anybody, even if maybe they drop the patient off and they're just returning back, you know. So not a lot of people get that kind of training unless they've done some military stuff before. So we're hopefully filling that gap for some people. People. Okay, and we'll, and we'll jump into the, the general principles and some particular scenarios soon. Mm. But can you give some case studies where, you know, ones you know where people have headed out for a routine flight and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden found themselves, you know, stuck overnight or for a period or they've been fogged in or something like that? Is there a, a couple of stories you can sort of bring to mind? Yeah, um, let me let me think of some good ones, mate. There's, there's some... Some of the, the key bits that we talk about aren't necessarily just the survival skills that everyone thinks about when they when they see the stuff on TV, so lighting fires and building shelters and that kind of stuff. One of, one of the key principles is um, the, your, kind of your mental posture. So your personal preparedness upstairs, what you've thought about, and this can be the simplest thing, what you've thought about before you go flying that day, what would happen if, all those sorts of bits. And I've got some colleagues at the Canadian SEER school, and they've got some really good examples, both from civilian light aircraft, both in very, very similar uh, weather conditions, very similar environments, and uh, two completely different outcomes. And it's all to do with what what you've prepared for mentally. So you've got two guys, one of whom is a a previously trained person with lots of equipment. He's thought about it. it, His aircraft um, has got the right gear in it. But, you know, he's he's never actually been in that situation. And in the heat of the moment, things can pan out differently. And then there's there's another guy uh, who's not had any training. And it sort of flips itself on its head. So if you want to survive, it's not just about attending a course and ticking a box. It's not just about packing the right little rucksack and almost treating it like a lucky talisman that, you know, if I've got this bag of gear, I'll be fine. You've got to know how all of it works and you've got to think about what you'll do at every stage. So the two individuals concerned have separate incidents, a couple of years apart. One guy, the guy with no training, forced lands in a very remote area of Canada. And what he manages to do is just be calm and collected. He sits near the airframe, gets the right signaling kit together, and ultimately gets rescued. And he gets rescued quite quickly for the area that he's in. The other guy is missing for a long time after his isolation incident. And they found the airframe. So the key thing is stay with the airframe if you can. If the environment is, is good enough, stay with it. You know, If you're not going to die of exposure where the airframe is, it's got a huge footprint for the kind of uh, sensors that are looking for someone who's 
who's, who's gone missing. So stick with the airframe if you can. Unfortunately, this guy in the heat of the moment disappears off and decides he's going to try and sort of Rambo it out. And uh, they didn't find his body until quite some time later. And all he'd taken with him was a pen knife. So yes, have all the kit with you, but just take a moment. The best advice you can get is, is just, make, and I've said this before in a couple of different forums, but just make a cup of tea. And I know Aussies and, and we Brits share a, a, the love of a good cuppa. And no matter what the temperature is and, and what's happening, to make a drink, even if it's, you know, just a, a quick something sugary, to sit and have that drink, it provides the vital fuel that your brain needs. And your brain runs on glucose. If you put a little bit of sugary drink into your system, it sort of stops you from disappearing on a tangent and it lets you gather your thoughts and importantly fuel the fire for what for what's going to come next because it may be that there's a lot of hard graft involved in some of the remote regions you guys have over in Australia and certainly in North America, those sorts of places. You could be on your own for a little while. So yeah, there are there are countless examples, mate, but the key thing is in all the examples where it has a positive outcome, the person, whether they're trained or not, has thought about what they've got to do and then has not flapped and not shot off too soon tops okay well and i had a couple of questions around the mental thing because again yeah, another, another interview you say you know 75 percent of survival comes back to the mental side of things so is, yeah. there, is there a couple of you know you talked about uh, i guess being prepared and thinking through in advance but is there a couple yes. of sort of mental attitudes that you can bring with you that's going to sort of or you know that you, that you can develop as you're going along yeah well a lot of um, a lot of what the guys will be doing routinely when they're flying does help so you know the, the simple the simple drills that people go through when they're doing their you know emergency egress type stuff. However, their currencies work in their, their their world. So when I was flying, it was a currency we had to do every so often where we'd simulate we had to evacuate the airframe as quick as we could. So you just go through those muscle memory things, and it's like it's doing a fire drill well, isn't it? It's like when the fire drill goes off at work, what people tend to do is they do it badly. They'll have a look out the door, see if there's anyone else looking out the door, decide whether or not they're going to take their mobile phone with them, when really what they should be doing is responding to the alarm and going to the muster point. So it's drilling those behaviours into your system to to do the right thing. Like a good friend of mine is a psychologist, Dr. John Leach. He'll often sort of ask the audience, when you get on a commercial flight and they're doing their uh, their in-cabin briefing about what's to do in the, the nature of an emergency, how many of you check under your seat for your life preserver? And there's normally about one or 2% of the audience will put their hand up. If you look back to a very recent event, you look back to um, Las Vegas about two weeks ago, see the photographs of the, the passengers. Yeah, carrying all their baggage off. On the tarmac outside the aircraft and loads of them have got huge items of hand luggage. Yeah, and, and that's just kind of a, People will do in emergency what they always do. If what you always do is wrong, then we need to drill it into ourselves to do the right thing. So it's a little bit of practice in in those muscle memory skills. So next time your listeners strap themselves into their helicopters, just take a moment before you, you fire it up and think about what would I do if it caught fire now? Which way would I run? Would I have the presence of mind to you know clamber across the cockpit and get out the non-burning side or would I try and tough it out on the on the flamey side you know just think about those simple things and then once you've you've kind of gone through that loop it's sort of we're getting into the realms of longer term survival i suppose but it's preparing yourself for that it's never that bad you know people have done these things for years and years there's some brilliant examples of guys who've had no survival training but have walked out of survival situations 10 11 days later with no training but having been the sole survivors just because they've not necessarily been more mentally tough but they've just had a good process of doing things in small steps. And that might be the key bit really, Mick. If you, if you can remember, or your guys, your audience remember that survival isn't just a one huge task. And this is me paraphrasing my friend, John Leach again. It's not one huge task. It's a series of little tasks that it makes it so much easier to cope with. And it stops people thinking that this is an overwhelming thing that I'm never going to be able to deal with and sitting still and just waiting for the worst to come. You know, if they can do a little task, even if it's just maybe, you know, stripping the, the airframe of a few wiring looms that they can then use to tie things together with or just gathering a little bit of fuel from the fuel drain valve to start a little stove going so they can cook boil some water to make it safe to drink if they can start to think how would i do that when i'm doing my walk round? if this was to be a helicopter that's now sort of had a really heavy landing and is unairworthy what could i use to uh, to sustain myself while i wait for my rescue beacon which i always pack which i make sure is in date and the batteries working you know if i do all these right things how will i do the next bit and as long as they red team themselves and what's the worst that could happen how would i cope with it they're going to be in a hugely better place than if they just think big blue sky nothing will ever happen to me stick my head in the sand 
All right, well, let's, you, you know, you've got a framework that you wrap the training around. So let's give some folks some yes. tools and uh, I guess talk through that framework. Uh, so at least if they, yeah. you know, they can't practice it, they've, you know, they might remember yeah. the, the, the key things. Yeah, exactly. So the, um, and I'm pretty sure this would have been the way you heard it too when you were up in Townsville, mate. But we talk about protection, location, water, and food. And what we're thinking about there is so protection from the elements. Location means get located, so be rescued. Water, because you need to drink. And food lasts, because it's not that big a deal to start with, at least. Um, you can break it down further again. So I'll just keep trying to repeat it. So hopefully the guys will maybe just jot it down, possibly even Google it, but hopefully remember it. So protection, location, water, food. Protection then, you're looking at first aid. So yeah, you should all have first aid kits when, you, when you're flying. And the key thing there is knowing what to do with them, what's in it and, and replenishing it. If you use a little bit of something because you've got a cut from you know a rough edge of material or whatever when you've been doing your walk around. The, the first aid part, that's stuff that people can sort out. You know, They can do first aid training, they can get awareness, they can keep the hands on with the skills. The next thing is, the clothing that they wear. So your first line of defense against any environment is what you've got on. Um, we're designed to live in the tropics. You know, our, our bodies are tuned for about 25 degrees Celsius in the African Rift Valley. And if we take ourselves out of that environment, then we're, we're at a disadvantage evolutionary. So if you go into cold water, worst case, then that's the quickest way to die. If you haven't got the right protective equipment when you're flying over cold water, if you ditch, you'll be lucky to hold your breath for long enough to get out of the airframe as it sinks. But when you get to the surface, if you haven't got a life uh, buoyancy aid, if you haven't got uh, a life raft, then you, your time is limited. So make sure you've got the right gear to protect yourself from that, including the kind of, um, you know, the right uh, survival suit. If you're in a, a hot climate, equally, don't be tempted to fly around in sort of shorts and a T-shirt all the time. Because if, if there's a fire, if it's a, a fixed wing aircraft, if there's a fire, then you, your legs are going get, to get burnt. Good friend of mine was in a, a flash fire on a helicopter. And pretty much all of his clothes burnt off because it was back in the day when there wasn't fire retardant combat clothing and it went up. And nowadays we've got fire retardant uniforms and certainly flight suits. So, you know, that's worth thinking about. And no, it's not comfortable. Um, it isn't comfortable to wear a sweaty flying suit on a hot day. But if the cab catches fire, then that's the only thing that's going to stop you burning with it. Equally, if you're going over cold water, it's not comfortable to wear a, uh, an emergency suit, but that's the only thing that will keep you alive if you go in. And, yeah, there's a balance between cockpit efficiency and survivability outside, but you, you've got to you've got to strike the right balance um, for, for if the worst thing were to happen. So clothing's vital. Uh, the little, the little next thing, thing on look, clothing. Go on, mate. Yeah, the little yeah. thing on clothing I remember is, and I can't remember where it is, but, you know, the, the saying was dress for the ground, don't dress for the air. Exactly, mate. Yeah, dress to survive. That's it. And it's very easy to sort of pay lip service to that. But all those people I know who've been, who've had the worst thing happen to them will all always, always hammer that point home because you're not a survivor until you're rescued, but you can't even start trying to survive unless you can get out of the airframe or, you know, survive impact with the terrain. So yeah, it's huge, but it, it's one of those things. It's quite simple to just skip over, isn't it? And we're all guilty of it at times in different ways, but you know, it's one of those first line of defense really. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. So, so the next thing then, mate, so you've got first protection, location, water, food. You've done first day training. You're up to date with that. You're wearing the right gear. The next thing is once you're outside of the airframe, you've got to try and protect yourself from the environment. And normally speaking, that's going to be to provide yourself with some degree of, of shelter. The one exception to that, mate, is if you're up in really deep snow or it's very cold, it's better to light a fire first. So get yourself to an area where you can I mean, provided there are trees, clearly, you know, if you're in a forested wooded area, get your, get your fire going before you start building your shelter. If you're flying over really rough tundra terrain, then you need to have some kind of shelter system with you and a stove as well. Otherwise, there's not a lot you can do about that situation. So, you know, you need to prepare in that sense with equipment. But yeah, so protection, location, water, food, first aid within protection, then clothing, then shelter unless it's in the Arctic. And then the last thing is fire unless it's in the Arctic, in which case, you know, light fire first. The reason fire first in the Arctic is you'll get cold hands building a shelter. And when you get cold hands, you lose manual dexterity, as you know. And it's very hard to light a fire when your fingers aren't working properly. But if you lit your fire first in cold weather and then your hands get cold building your shelter, you can warm your hands on the fire that's already lit. Yeah, so that's okay. the theory of that, sense. mate. Right on. Um, so, yeah. 
that's the protection part of it. The next part is location. And the key thing now, and this isn't that commonly known, bizarrely, but lots of guys will, you know, have very expensive watches that do this sort of stuff or even pack beacons. But the architecture in space that listens for these beacons, they stopped listening to 121.5 megahertz in in, um, February 2009. They were getting like 98% false alarms. So you can have a really fancy Breitling watch with a 121.5 beacon in it, but you're only going to be picked up if another aircraft on that frequency hears it, which might you know, might happen if you're near an airway, but they still won't know where you are. They'll just report to the local aeronautical rescue coordination centre that, oh, I heard a beacon, and they can't pick you up from space because it's not listening. So what everyone should try to carry if they're flying in remote areas is a 406 megahertz personal locator beacon because 406 megahertz will work in two ways it will get picked up by the space assets the cospass sarsat architecture and it will also send a gps position letting that architecture know exactly where you are so that's a better frequency to carry all that information but also it's registered so there's a there's a unique code to each radio that the individuals carrying it can register at a particular address with a particular phone number so it goes through that they've They've sort of landed. They've got the right clothes and they've done all the first aid stuff. They've found themselves a little shelter. They're out of the weather. They set the beacon off. Within minutes, the Tracy brothers up in space are like doing their little weird puppet thing. And they're like, yeah, there he is. And we know who it is because this database says that it's, it's Mick. And he does that podcast. So he's going to be fine because he heard that idiot from Britain rambling on about this. But they can tra- trace back to whoever your like, designated other is and check to make sure it's not an inadvertent um, emission. And the best part about this is that then all the architecture gets energized. The SAR, the search and rescue assets, focusing on that zone. And if you're out at sea, then it may be a ship that's diverted over towards you. It may be one of your um, you know, long-range maritime rescue aircraft. Or if you're near inshore, it could be like a helicopter. If you're inland somewhere, it might be a, a land-based rescue team. But you've done that then. So all you have to do now is you press this big red button. The guys are coming to get you. You then get your notebook out and you start writing like mad because you're going to write a book about this and it's going to make you a bestseller. <laughs> and the next thing you know, you know, you retire into the Canary Islands or wherever and you live in the life of Riley. So that the key investment is get a decent rescue beacon and life will be rosy. Uh, the film rights after that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who wouldn't? But then, mate, so priorities continue. So let's say for the worst case, you've not remembered your beacon that day. You're looking at other means of getting located. So... There's loads of stuff up in the sky, some that we can see, some that we can't, that would be looking out for people who get lost, people in distress. And uh, you need to build big signals for that stuff to see you. And uh, you also need to be thinking about other people that might be looking for you. Have I let people know? What, what does my flight plan say? Have I left details of what I'm carrying? You know, what survival kit I've got? Um, there's a free download on our website, survivalwisdom.com, where people can access a personal outdoor plan. So it's a free download, no, no hassle. All we say is, make a nice um, contribution to your local search and rescue group to show willing to them because they do it out of the goodness of their hearts. And you can fill all this information out so people know exactly where to look for you, exactly what signaling kit you'll be using, and then they can come and find you by sort of more 1950s means than the the, the 406 beacon. But you're still going to get rescued. You know, you do the right thing, they'll come and find you. So so what all that points towards, um, go on, mate. That website again, so survivalwisdom.com. Yeah, survivalwisdom.com. It's called a personal... Yeah. That's right, we've got the delay in the line. While we're talking websites then, we should mention yours too. So johnhudsonsurvival.com is where people can find out a little bit more about you and we'll talk about that towards the end too. Yeah, uh, yeah. that's um, that's just sort of like my little online business card, if you like. But yeah, the best thing to do is fill out these sorts of plans, make sure that people know where you're going, what you've got, as well as your flight plan, and then they'll be able to tell, you know, what's my intentions? If I'm flying over the great, barren f all and something really bad happens am i going to stay with the airframe how much water have i got what's my kind of ability to create shade if it's scorching hot somewhere in your interior you know that kind of thing and and what's my plan going to be the worst thing would be to try and walk away because then they lose sight of you you get hard to find so you know just annotate in very brief detail all that kind of good stuff but the main thing mate carry a decent beacon and yeah that's that then you're looking into longer term survival really mick Okay, so the next thing would be, I guess, priority then is water? Yes, mate. So water, water. It's like a misconception that survival is all about charging around with your head on fire and catching animals and biting their heads off. It completely isn't. It's not that. Water is far more important. You'll, you'll die sooner if you don't get a drink than you will if you don't have something to eat. Uh, fact, pretty much 
anywhere in the world. I can't think of a, a single instance where that isn't really true. I mean, I'm sure you, your podcast guys might come up with something. Please let me know because I'd, I'd love to factor that into our survival training. But you're going to dehydrate more quickly than you'll, you'll starve to death. You've got to have clean water to drink, though. So the catch is you can't drink everything that you see. If you start to drink uh, dirty water and you're going to be out for some time, then, yeah, it could make you very ill. There's a, there's a common sense balance that's probably popping into everyone's minds now. It's better to drink water than to, de- than to die of dehydration because you could, you could say, oh, I'm not drinking that. It looks a bit dirty. And the rescue will be here soon and it's, you know, it's days before they get to you. So you, you may have to bite the bullet and drink some dirty water. Most pathogens have got like a seven to 10 day gestation period inside you. So you're likely to not really be ill for a little while and you'll probably hopefully be in a hospital by then. So I'd, if it was me, you know, there was water there, but I was de- really severely dehydrated. And I didn't have the means to make it safe. I'd probably drink it. The best way to make water safe to drink is to boil it. Boil it, big bubbles, no troubles. I said that on the, the telly bobbins that we did a while ago. But, you know, if you can get a rolling boil going in your water, it's safe to drink. Um, and that's true wherever you are in the world, whatever else you drink. So other bits of expensive kit are available. You know, you can put all kinds of fancy tablets into it. You can use UV pens. You can put it through fancy pumps. But if you can boil it, you're golden. So you need to know, have, have a good boiling vessel, have some kind of metal cup in your survival pack, have some way of lighting a fire. And, uh, and that's, that's it. You, you find water, you know, you can boil it, make it safe to drink. Tricky. If it's an arid environment, if you, if you're somewhere that's really, really arid, the key signal that water's present is any kind of green. And I'm sure guys who are out in the, uh, in the, in the desert regions already know all that sort of stuff. So if you are out in those sorts of arid regions, carry your water with you and you have it in, big enough quantities and crash proof so that it'll survive the impact if you have a very heavy landing in a brownout or something like that and then make the last thing is that, is that you're then into the realms of food and again you know just carry something with you glucose is ideal because any of those glucose type sweets you don't have to have water to digest it you just because of the chemical composition of glucose when you're eating those glucose tablets it actually releases water chemically through your cellular in- interface into your body so you know you're up on the deal pretty much protein not the same so if you're taking things like biltong or beef jerky you need loads of water to process that and if you don't have water and you eat it you're dehydrating yourself internally and it's one of those little things that not everyone knows about but it's definitely worth trying to remember if you're going to put some food in your swabble pack make it glucose so those dextrose tablets that kind of thing oh okay that's pretty good okay well i'm talking about you know a practical emergency kit or survival kit that you know, I'm thinking someone who's flying over the Grand Canyon or, you know, a typical sort of yeah. um, helicopter charter type job. Yes. What's some practical stuff, uh, you know, off the shelf survival kit or things they can make up themselves that people would actually carry? Like, you know, they're probably not going to carry a machete yeah. and stuff like that with them, but, but what could they actually pack in, you know, in their flight bag and actually have on them? May I'm with you. And that, that's a good point that you raised, Mick. So having a flight bag or have on you, all the incidents that we, we see, there's the odd exception, but let's say the vast majority of the incidents that we we see, people have with them to survive, uh, to, to use for survival, whatever's in their pockets when they get out of the aircraft. Now, if they're looking, it's not on fire, then they'll go back in and grab their grab bag. But unless you practice and remember every time you debus to grab your grab bag, if there's a really sort of urgent event, you won't remember it. You'll just get out with what's in your pockets. So the schools of thought are to layer your survival equipment. So on your person, have something that has multiple uses and is, you know, is going to help you across those different things. And the obvious one, like you say, is is some kind of cutting tool. It'll depend on the environment. So a little axe is good in a northern forest. A survival knife is good, even if it's just a pocket knife. Um, And if you are in the jungle, yeah, it'd be brilliant to have a machete. But you can get by without a prang or a machete. It's just a lot harder work. You'd still need some kind of blade, I would suggest, though. If you drill yourself to do it and your grab bag's easily accessible, then yes, do get, you know, get into that routine. And a grab bag's brilliant. And it's what we all, we're, we're mandated to carry in the military. And we all, whoever, whoever have done it, have probably got into the routine of doing it. Is that, do you, do you have a grab bag, Mick? Is that something you, you're a fan of or have you got a different Well, no, because look, you know, I spend a lot of my time in the circuit or the local training area. So, no, I, I basically right. jump in a machine with a, with a map and whatever, whatever I'm wearing. So, uh, we have a you know first aid right. kit under the seat and have, have a beacon there, yep. uh, but you know quite oh, honestly, good. yeah, we're probably within sight of 
houses for uh, most, okay. most of the flying I'm doing, I guess. But right, uh, yeah, you know, I'll be different to, to other folks. But no, well, yeah, well, I was thinking with the machete is, you know, I can just imagine jumping in with a machete into the, into the helicopter and if you've got any passengers or anything, they kind of start thinking what's going on. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and, I, and, and again, Check back to the TV. Button. Yeah, yeah. And back to the TV show, you know, you pull out, um, you know, things out of your belt buckle and you've got, to, you know, things hidden in your, yeah. your patches and all that sort of gear. But, uh, yeah, I'm just interested yeah. in... You know, if you're putting yourself in a, in a charter pilot's, you know, and then you know they're taking off doing flights up and down the Gold Coast or something like that, you know, again they're not going to particularly be remote, but just little little things that they could pack in. Um, that, yeah, that uh, you picked up along the way that would be good tips, mate. But some really useful stuff. I mean, you can improvise quite a lot from the airframe, but yeah, a little knife, not not your sort of uh, John Rambo huge parang, but a little knife, a little folding knife preferably with a lockable blade but you know if not then the best of all knife is the one you've got and another really useful bit of kit is just a little survival mirror because you, you mentioned the grand canyon and you, you sort of um you, you question i suppose but even on like an average sort of day over here you get a little bit of blue sky and a heliograph is great and in most of the places that your your listeners um will, will go there's a good chance that it'll be a sunny spot someday or other and it's it's a brilliant piece of equipment to have because you can signal to people from you know 80 miles away using a good heliograph and it's just a tiny little signal mirror it takes up no room sort of thing you can just have in a, a flight jacket pocket or whatever and, and almost forget about and the stuff that i was i was hiding in my kit was i was only hiding it because the lads were going to frisk me i mean you could have all that and, and more, you know, a little compass on your watch strap if you need to orientate yourself. Um, those sorts of things are, are fairly easy to carry on your person. But, mate, a, a cutting tool. You can't go wrong with having a good cutting tool. It, it, it covers off loads of bases. And then if you attach some other little gadgets to the edge of your first aid kit, then, yeah, why not have it? Okay. Um, obviously, most of the case, we're going to have a, a, some kind of airframe uh, with us if we've landed or yep. crashed somewhere. What, what's a couple yep. of things in the in a generic airframe or a generic helicopter that people might not think about that um, but would be useful? So you mentioned you know pulling out wiring loom and using that as some kind yeah. of uh, thread or, or sort of um, you know rope material. Uh, what other yep. bits and pieces can you rip out of a machine that people might not think of um, on first glance? Yeah. So. Um... It's a tricky one to airframe dependent, obviously, but as a general start of a 10, you will have a, a reasonably powerful battery somewhere. Don't discount the radio in the airframe. You know, if you've, if you've still got some kind of ground power from the, uh, from the battery, then use the airframe as it was intended. If it's the right way up and the antennas are in the right orientation, then try and use the radio to signal for rescue. So you've got a huge rescue beacon in effect. So use it as it was intended. If that isn't working, then the battery could be used to sort of short out and start a fire that way. Um, first aid kits within that, you'll have some kind of gauze probably, and um, you'll have um, dressings for wounds. And you can short out the battery terminals with some of that wiring loom across some cotton wool or whatever from a, a dressing, and that'll start a, a little fire. So we're not talking about setting fire to the airframe. We're talking about making a, a small fire that you can then use to boil water on and, and um, you know, and warm your hands if it's cold or signal for rescue with depending on the airframe again mate the tires if it's got rubber they'll produce black smoke so wood will produce gray smoke but the tires will produce a nice thick black smoke which is again brilliant for signaling for rescue um same with the upholstery you know you're not going to be able to burn most of it because it's um it's fire retardant but just taking out the seats will insulate you from the ground, either on a hot or a cold day, and that will stop you wasting valuable calories if it's cold or overheating if it's hot. So think about it as a kind of a mobile campsite. The next bit you've got is all that um, insulative material, that soundproofing material in the in the cabin. That makes great sort of uh, space blanket stuff. And try to, if you can, try to build a shelter that's away from the airframe because airframes will heat up like an oven in the daytime and act like a refrigerator at night. So you're looking at good shade in the in the heat of the day and away away from a contained metal box and a good insulated shelter that's not going to act like a refrigerator for an cold environment and those sort of lining materials are brilliant for that you can strip them all out i mentioned very briefly earlier as well you've probably got a fuel drain valve if you can drain some of that fuel off and use it to to light your fire with to, to use for cooking because if it's very cold It'll, uh, it'll ultimately oils and things will freeze up and they might not be free to move so drain them while you can and uh, if it's, it's really hot then the fuel will be useful because there's perhaps not too much vegetation that you can use for fire fuel anyway so you're kind of going from top to bottom really and looking through all those bits you may have like a, a fresno lens somewhere within the um either the the plexiglass or on the on the instrument panel 
depending on the make and model of the aircraft. Fresno lenses are awesome for magnifying the sun's rays to, to, to make a fire as well. So that's all, all good stuff. But be, be just improvise, mate. Storing water is a really hard thing to do. If you haven't got a bespoke water container, you might be looking at some of the, the piping that's it, that's uh, available, even if it's just like the ducting from the engine. You know, some of the um, maybe some of the piping that's used in the, the the heating system to get the hot air around the, around the cab. So that piping will probably hold a couple of liters of water. And if you're looking at, you know, you've got a water source nearby, but you're returning to the airframe while you wait for rescue, then that's a good way of transporting it. There's there's it is only limited by people's imaginations on the day as well. You know, there's a thousand different answers for that, but they're, they're the first few that trip off my tongue, mate. No, is that the sort of thing you meant? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just yeah, things that, you know, and the tires too. You're like, yeah, I hadn't actually <laughs> you know, ripping the tires off, and yeah, I guess it depends where you are. <laughs> we we'll, we'll put it yeah, on the beach, yeah. start burning it, and explain to the chief engineer <laughs> what happened. <laughs> All right. Well, look, um, I guess two more things. Well, I'll get some tips on some books or some case studies people can look at. But um, right. can, can you talk about? I guess as being you know the, the aircraft captain or with passengers on board that leadership, yes. leadership role. I guess with yeah. um, with random passengers. You know what, what? What's some good things? Have you got people with you? Uh, how do you stop yep. them from panicking? And um, I guess right. get them going the right way. Right. Yeah. Good question. So, when you look at like group scenarios, when people are in unusual situations, they will always look for leadership. Um, but whether or not the guy in charge of the aircraft has done any survival training, he'll be the or she'll be the person they look to for leadership because you can guarantee the pilots knows a bit more about the situation than the passengers as a kind of rule of thumb you know 75 percent of the population will be stunned and bewildered if this kind of event happens and that may include the crew you know you've got a two-man two-person crew or just one solo guy at the front then they may well be there's a 75 percent chance that they'll be stunned and bewildered as well the thing that pushes the the pilots and the crews into the appropriate response category is is training and awareness. So again, can't emphasize enough, get some survival training from quality sources and that'll help you out. But to answer the specific question, if people are reacting in a, um, in a, in an inappropriate way, let's say, so stunned and bewildered is okay. That's normal. The only thing that the crew have to worry about at that point is making sure they evacuate efficiently and, and move to a safe spot before they rebrief them on what's happening next. If people start to act inappropriately, then there are ways of intervening and it's probably important at this point, Mick, to just mention that panic isn't that common. Panic stems from a perceived restriction in, in space or in time. And the, the only time, the only time I've ever witnessed proper panic in a survival scenario was when I did the Hewitt. I think it was the first time I went through it as a, uh, as a military helicopter pilot. And we were in a very small module in the UK uh, military uh, helicopter underwater escape trainer. Me and my friend were numbers five and six on the back row of seating and numbers one to four were pretty much non-swimmers. And that's proper panic. When you're strapped into a metal box that's being submerged and you don't swim and the windows are all shut, then you witness panic because it's got both a definite restriction in space and in time. And that was like, it's like being in a washing machine with karate experts. Uh, there's no other way of describing it really, but we, it was like all arms and legs and nobody was really going for the exit. And it's the most near to swallowing a load I've ever had. As we popped to the surface, I was like gasping for air. But if people do panic, it can be contagious. So the key thing to try and do, if someone's starting to flap a little bit, is just to separate them if you can and just explain the nature of what's going on and, and prevent the panic from spreading. Not always easy if it's an emergency that's occurring in the air, admittedly, but um, on the ground, once the sort of dust has started to settle, then separate and calm down. The best thing you can do with a group of people is give them tasks to do. So it goes back to what we've mentioned early on, Mick, when we were talking about what you would do in an emergency. So don't only think about how I would do this. Think about what I would do if I had three other people who were looking at me with big wide eyes, and you know sort of white knuckles what what will i tell them to do and it may be okay you um could you just grab this this and this off the back seat please bring that out and put it in a pile over here could you have a look around the horizon see if you can see any other aircraft you know these sort of simple tasks it'll give them something productive to do they'll feel part of the team there's a load of drills and skills that you can get into if it gets to longer term you know things like making sure you have a a regular roll call all that sort of stuff but ultimately you're looking to give them productive tasks that are helping the, the overall situation but that aren't mission critical so you're not delegating the use of the radio beacon to someone who's never had it before but you, you know appropriately giving them jobs to do and uh, it's a force multiplier because as soon as people start with a little bit of direction to do the right thing then they get it 
And it may be that, you know, you've come down in some sort of high forested area, you've made your way to the forest floor and you've got to get a couple of them to gather firewood in the locale while you try and jack up the, the radio antenna, whatever it may be. But, you know, concurrent activity is the key, mate. And it isn't always going to be that easy, I know, but there'll be injuries to deal with, all that kind of stuff. And I guess someone's got to make you a cup of tea. Exactly. No, <laughs> I should have said that first. You're absolutely right, mate. You're well ahead of me. Somebody get the kettle on. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Um, favorite book on the topic? I think I've seen a couple of your tweets. There's a Antarctic explorer. Is it Shackleton or? Oh yeah, yeah. There's a few, mate. Yeah. Um, so if you are interested in the cold, then I I think South by Shackleton is a brilliant a brilliant book. And you know it's important to note that he always made sure that the expeditions had enough alcohol because morale is a key factor in these sorts of events. And he's he's unique in sea survival stories because he managed to get all of his guys back to safety and he was outside of the tropics when you look at long-term sea survival stuff when it comes up in the media it's nearly always in the tropics which is um less likely to to off you quickly whereas the arctic where he was you know cold water will kill you in in minutes if not if not hours you know uh, so yeah south's a good one by shackleton sir ernest shackleton great read um other ones there's a really good book i'm trying to remember the proper title but the author it's an autobiographical by a woman called juliana kopka and uh, when i fell to earth i think it's called but she was a teenage girl in a uh, south american commercial flight on christmas eve and it self-destructed it disintegrated over the andes and you might have heard of her i'm not sure mate but it was a thunderstorm violent ups, updrafts downdrafts airplane tackered i think it was plane fell to pieces and she survived because she was strapped into her seat so she had a seat belt fastened like you're supposed to in turbulent air and uh, it kind of acted a bit like a sycamore leaf uh, sycamore seed sorry they think and she sort of spiraled her way down and her fall, her fall was broken by triple canopy jungle and she managed to just follow water which is often one of the tactics you'll hear there was no way she was going to get rescued if she stayed still but she heard a trickle of water she followed it till it became a stream she followed the stream till it became a little river Followed the river till it became a big river and 11 days later she found some hunters and got rescued having fallen from like tens of thousands of feet from the air yeah. so you know that's a Oh, well, it's, it's an awesome story, mate. Really, really good tale. If you want a really good survival manual for your guys, my friend Colin Towell has written a really good one, and it's the Royal Marines Survival Manual, but Colin Towell, T-O-W-E-L-L, and uh, that's got really good practical advice, and it's very easy to follow because Colin, like me, works in, like, one or two syllables. <laughs> Tops. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's plug your website again. So, um, folks, it's uh, you know, John, yes, John Hudson Survival.com. Yeah. And, uh, and definitely it's worth jumping on YouTube. Yeah. That's uh, my little um, business card page. Yeah. Yeah. It's got a nice smiling picture of you there. And, uh, <laughs> and, and look, it's, it's worthwhile. If you've enjoyed John talking, yeah, head out, jump on YouTube. Or I don't know, there's very yellow places to find it, but uh, it's called uh, Dude, Jeez, Dude, You're Screwed is the, uh, the TV series. And, uh, <laughs> Not my it, choice. There's a, a lot of fun on there. So, uh, John, that, look, that's, that's awesome. Um, really appreciate your time. And, uh, yeah, it's, Pleasure. it's been a lot of fun. No, likewise, Mick. Thanks very much for inviting me on the show. And uh, hopefully none of your listeners will ever need to know any of the stuff I've been babbling about. Fly safely. Perfect. That was John Hudson from johnhudsonsurvival.com. And look, all the links and, and some of the photos and things from this interview, including the BBC story about Sergei Aninov and his survival in the Arctic, uh, will be included in the show notes and the blog post for this episode. So look for episode 36 on rotarywingshow.com. If you've got a, a question for John that we didn't cover in the interview, then leave a comment on the blog post and I'm sure John will be more than happy to continue the, the conversation there uh, with you. And also worth checking out is, is the, um, the TV series, Dude, You're Screwed. And you can probably find a couple of the episodes on YouTube. And when you watch a couple of these, you'll, you'll hear the high regard that the other cast members, these other survival sort of hardcore experts actually hold John in. So, you know, he really is one of the top experts in the world when it comes to this kind of stuff. And as you just heard, you know, he's a really nice guy to boot. Lots of takeaways in this interview. I'd love to know what yours were, and I'll tell you mine shortly. But, uh, you know, if you want to share that, and again, comment on the episode show notes and just give people from your experience uh, what your top takeaways were uh, after listening to John go through that. And, you know, also, again, you know, what you've experienced in your own training and uh, working out there in the field on the job. So definitely, you know, one of my top takeaway, and I guess we measure these sorts of things by actual real behavioral change. So I used to, you know, always carry a, a knife with me. 
and uh, I guess it's a combination one. So John spoke about you know how useful uh, some kind of blade is in in a survival or a extended sort of recovery situation. And the other part he talks about too is the fact that you know quite often when you get out of the aircraft, the only things you've got with you are whatever is actually on your body at the time. So yeah, as I said, I've definitely gotten out of the habit of, of flying with a, a knife. So after this interview with John, you know something I'm going to change is uh, going back to carrying a, a foldable knife just in, in the calf pocket of the uh, flight suit. So it's a you know, small behavioural change I'm hoping to put into place. You know after having a chance of uh, you know chatting with someone like John with that experience. A couple of quick plugs here, folks. So again, if you haven't downloaded the uh, list of the top 10 helicopter books for helicopter aircrew, then you can go and grab that off the uh, website. And also uh, a plug for our sponsors at trainmorepilots.com. So again, it's a website where you can download some resources that can help you market your aviation business, especially if it's a flight school business online. That's trainmorepilots.com. If you do want to send in a, in a question or you've got some feedback, then uh, please use an email address at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. But there's also a little voice recording widget there on the website. So if you want to give uh, your company a shout out or or tell folks about uh, where you are in the world, if you're doing something really interesting, then just use that recording widget on the website. It's a bit of interactive. We're going to include it in a a future episode. And, you know, it just helps sort of bring the community together and realize what, you know, we've all these different aspects around the world of things we do uh, and sort of a, a shared resource there. Thank you again for listening in to the Rotary Wing Show. And please do pass this episode around if you do know someone who's going to get some benefit from it. That's it for this week, and I will catch you in the next episode.